Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey everybody, what is up? Happy Friday, happy Friday. Hope that your weekend has gotten off to a really good start. As promised, here is the special bonus ode that we're dropping into your feed on this Brazilian Grand Prix weekend. Yesterday, Mark and I, we joined uh, Tim Hereni of the TSN Racing Pod. Tim is one of our favorite people in Formula One. He's such a good guy, loads of experience as a driver, really knows his stuff, and we always love the opportunity whenever we can collaborate with him. Anyways, Tim was kind enough to share the audio from this uh, show that we did together, and uh, of course, we, we highly recommend checking out whatever Tim is up to. You can find him on Twitter at Tim Haraney. Go to Apple, go to Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and search up the TSN Racing Pod or head on over to tsn.ca and you can find Tim's podcast there and whatever else he is up to. Anyways, that's it. Enjoy the race. I guess tomorrow morning, Saturday, we'll find out what shenanigans have been going on at Interlagos with Lewis, with the Flexi Wing, with Max. I don't know, guys. This is unexpected and bizarre to say the least. So stay tuned for more. Anyways, enjoy. Talk to you guys Sunday night. We'll wrap up the weekend, wrap up the race. Bye for now. Just after we had finished recording this podcast, Otmar Safnauer spoke with the media. Now, we did discuss the rumor of Otmar leaving for Alpine on the show today, but wanted to make sure I updated you on the story. So, Otmar Safnauer told us on Friday during the FIA team principals press conference, he confirmed that he had no plans of leaving Aston Martin and that he had a long-term contract in place with the team. He didn't flat out deny the rumor though, but he did make mention that he thought the rumor came from a chat he had with Alpine CEO Lauren Rossi. Quote, I was sitting next to Lauren Rossi when Jonathan McAvoy, who works for the Daily Mail, asked if Aston Martin were recruiting a CEO to take my job. I knew nothing of that and jokingly Rossi said, oh, if you're leaving, come talk to us. And that was about it. I don't know if that is what sparked the Otto Hebdal article. So there you have it on the saga with Omar Safnar leaving Aston Martin. Seems pretty legit that he's going to be staying put for now. But again, he did not deny the rumor. So I'll have to wait and see if this story evolves at all as the season progresses. Other than that, enjoy the show, everyone. Please like, share, subscribe, write a review of the TSN Racing Pod on Apple. I hope you all enjoy the episode. You're listening to the TSN Racing Pod. If you want more TSN Racing Pod, you can get it at tsn.ca slash tsn-racing-pod or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Tim Haraney. You can get me at Tim Haraney on all forms of social media. Today's episode is brought to you by Jones Soda. 
As a healthy athletic guy, I run, I bike, swim, strength train, and eat very healthy. But when it's time to reward myself for all the hard work that I put into the week, I like to treat myself to a Jones Cream Soda. Jones Soda comes in a wide range of flavors from berry lemonade to blue bubble gum. So if you're like me and you want to treat yourself to something cold, refreshing, and bubbly, then reach for a Jones Soda. Four races to go in the 2021 F1 World Championship. Max Verstappen leads seven-time F1 champ Lewis Hamilton by 19 points in the driver's standings, while Mercedes leads the constructors by just one point. We're going to chat all about that. And Otmar Safnauer to Alpine F1, finally embracing the hybrid power unit. The Volkswagen Group entering F1 and their cutoff date for that. Alfa Romeo driver announcement. Lewis Hamilton on Valentino Rossi and George Russell also delayed freight for this weekend's team and more. On the show, we'll chat with Mark Squared from the Scootery F1 podcast. Scootery F1 podcast can be found on Apple and Spotify. Joined by Mark Hamilton and Mark Daly from the Scootery F1 podcast. Guys, how are you? Mark H, we'll start with you. Oh, I'm fantastic, my friend, and I know we're going to get into this quickly, but I keep having to remind all my friends that are new to F1, this championship is not over. There are four Grand Prix left, including two at tracks we've never seen a Formula One car on, and one that we've seen many races on, but totally reprofiled. So I'm excited. There's a lot of championship left. Mark Daly, how the hell are you? I'm doing thanks, uh, doing great. Thanks, uh, Tim. Enjoying a, a rare day off here. And much like you guys, I, I'm so stoked for the last uh, three, four races here. I'm saying three or four because I have my doubts about Jetta, but we'll see. We'll see. Huh. I, I'm, I'm an optimist. So I'm going to say it's going to go. Yeah, you think it's going to be built in time? I think so. I don't know. What about you, Hammy? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's going to be ready. And I've had my I've had the mouse cursor on Expedia a couple times <laughs> ready to buy those airline tickets. I don't think it's going to be complete in the sense that all the VIP and the hospitality will be done. But I think the logistical elements necessary to stage a Formula One race will be ready. And if it's not, well, Bahrain is just an hour flight away. So you conveniently you have a backup, but I think it's going to be ready. I think it's going to be ready for sure. Yeah, I have a feeling that they have that backup race uh, ready in, in their back pocket with uh, Bahrain, the outer the outer circle or whatever they did last year. Actually, which was not bad racing. It was fun. It was, good it was fun to watch. Six corners, that was a blast. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Uh, you can get uh, Mark H and Mark D, Mark Square. Get them on Twitter at ScooteryF1Pod. Uh, some developing stories, guys, as we head into the Brazil uh, Grand Prix here. Let's start with the uh, the news that came out on Thursday uh, with Otmar Safnauer um, reportedly at the time. Speculation was saying that he was off to Alpine and leaving Aston Martin. So I ended up following up with a source that was close to this story, and they just told me, hey, check Otmar's Instagram. And so I did, and he had just posted his announcement saying that this was all fabricated by the media and it was blown out of proportion but he never denied it never mm. denied it guys so do we think there's something here mark uh, daly i'll come to you first 
Well, you know, this, this is kind of an interesting one. Unless Otmar did something like run over Lawrence Stroll's dog in the parking lot and they completely fell out. I, I just, I don't see it from a career advancement point of view. I, I know that Alpine, Renault, there's like, some, there's some big bucks behind it, but I just see so much more room for growth at, uh, at Aston Martin. I mean, Lawrence seems really committed to this project over the short, medium and long term. And Alpine, Renault, whatever you want to call them, they, they've really stumbled. They've never really found their feet in Formula One ever since they, they bought out Lotus several years back. And it, it just seems like it, they just sputter along. And I, I just, like I say, unless he's had a real falling out with the higher ups at Aston Martin, I just can't see it, denial or not. Mark H, what say you? Yeah, I think there's something to this. I think where there's smoke, there's fire to to cop a cliche that we've all heard far too many times in the world of Formula <laughs> One and sports. But I think that move that Lawrence Stroll had by bringing in Martin Whitmarsh at the beginning of October to oversee the entire Aston Martin project. So we're talking about the performance groups of the road car division and Formula One. I think that kind of came a little bit out of nowhere. And at the time, Lawrence Stroll was on the Beyond the Grid podcast, and he was asked very specifically about what, what's going to change in terms of the Formula One structure, who's going to be in charge, who's going to run the division. And ultimately, Lawrence kind of pushed back, said, look, you know, Martin's only been with us for three days. You know what? The, the structure is going to settle and we're going to figure this out. But I wonder, I can't help but wonder, maybe it became very clear to Otmar that his his ceiling, his growth opportunities were now limited because Martin Wishmarsh is being brought in and he's going to have a fairly significant hand. And this is more speculative. I don't know this, but my sense is that that was a big move. It was unexpected. It potentially caps Artmar's development within the Aston Martin group. And then maybe, you know what, Alpine, Alpine came knocking and said, hey, we can give you a greater ceiling. We can give you more control, more decision-making. But to Daly's point, if, if I had the opportunity to run one of those two teams, it's going to be Aston Martin, especially with the resources that pulled into that team, the factory that they're developing at Silverstone, that to me is the more attractive job. But again, if all of a sudden the dynamics of your role changes because you've got a new boss, maybe that changes things. But but wouldn't Martin Whitmarsh be more of a Zach Brown kind of figure at Aston Martin, like, uh, like Zach is at McLaren? Yeah, definitely. But at the same time, I think if you're like Otmar and you guys have made perfectly good points about this. I mean, wouldn't you want to say evolve from say a, a team principal CEO ish type role and try and move up the, the corporate ladder to, to the top? I mean, that, sure. that would only make sense. I think, right. I, I, in terms of, of Otmar of where he's, of where he started with Honda and now where he is with Aston Martin, it would only make sense, but I don't know. I jump on these uh, Zoom meetings with him every once in a while with Aston Martin, and whenever he's asked about it, and whenever he's asked about War Martin Whitmarsh, he's he never bristles at any of the questions. His body language doesn't um, tell us that there is anything there that that's wrong. I think maybe at the end of the day, Alpine came knocking, and that's where this has started, and and kind of evolved to whether or not there is something that's been signed, sealed and delivered. I mean, we, we're not going to know. Um, I think at the end of the day, they may have offered him a bit more money and who knows, Lawrence may have matched it. I just get that sense that, I don't know guys, I don't think there's, I don't think there's too, too much to be made out of this. At least not yet. I don't know what you guys yeah, that. totally. And and just to my, my sort of final thought on it is, uh, you know, regardless if he's thinking one way or another, I think if you if you're Otmar, uh, Otmar you know, 
I, I would keep mum on it, you know, just to basically don't don't shoot down the Alpine thing any more than you need to, just so you don't burn that bridge because you never know what might happen in the future while you're doing the right doing the right thing and uh, you know flying the corporate uh, flag for for Aston Martin. I would add that that Tim makes a really great point, and I, I don't know, uh, Mark. I don't obviously you don't know. We've never been in the grid at the paddock like Tim has, but I have to think that being a Timmy principal is an absolute grind. Aside oh. from being a driver, it's probably one of the toughest jobs. The sheer amount of travel from the factory to the road, uh, following potential up and coming talents in the F two and the F three circle, uh, media obligations, sponsorship obligations. I have to imagine that job is a grind, and maybe for Otmar, this is less about not wanting to be a team principal, maybe as Tim kind of indicated, maybe he wants to be more of an executive, spend more time at the factory, look after those relationships with the sponsors, have a team principal reporting right into you. And maybe that wasn't going to be an opportunity or something that was going to materialize at Aston Martin. And maybe, maybe that's what Alpine has offered him, but we don't know. Maybe we'll never know, but maybe this is something that will come to bear fruit in the coming months. Yeah, because I think a lot of us were taken aback when they did come in and, and hire Martin. And it was a surprise for a lot of people in the paddock and especially in the media as well. And I'm sure for Otmar, he knew it was he knew it was coming, but I honestly feel that he didn't know in which capacity um Whitmarsh was coming in under. I, I really feel that way. But at the end of the day, like I was saying, I mean, just when we interview him, he just doesn't never bristle at these questions. So mm-hmm. that just leads me to believe that there may not be much going on here. And maybe Lawrence has promised him something a little bit further on uh, down the road. Just a quick question. Do either of you guys know how many years it's been since Martin's been in Formula One? It's been, what, 10 years? Longer? I it's been a long time. I know that much. Yeah, it's definitely been a while. So his last real, and I know Tim's going to pull this up in a couple of seconds, but obviously he was pretty involved with with McLaren, obviously working alongside Ron Dennis for many, many years. But I think you're right. I think it's been at least, what, six, seven years, Tim? Maybe at least. Can... So he formally parted ways with McLaren in 2014 after 24 mm. years. Wow. Moving on to the hybrid engines because that's become a bit of a conversation uh which is good finally uh so the v6 uh turbo hybrid engine that formula one cars use they've been using them since 2014 and nothing uh has been done in terms of marketing the message of these power units over the years um i think they are the most incredible pieces of technology on the world at the moment in terms of automotive uh, and this weekend formula one will introduce their own um, hybrid engine branding around the racetrack guys what do you think about this oh uh, you know i i have to go first mr daly i'm so sorry <laughs> i'm going to interject to me it is absolutely astounding that they have had this asset in the back of every one of their cars for seven years, but they haven't been screaming it from the mountaintops. Tim, to your point, the thermal efficiency, the complexity, the amount of electrification that these engines generate is just, it's mind boggling. And anyone who spent any time around automobiles or engines or modifying cars or has an engineering degree, everyone agrees that these are absolutely 
the cream of the crop when it comes to engineering capability. And the fact that Formula One hasn't been screaming and marketing this and putting it in front of the brand is, is shocking. So it's great that they finally are. And like you said, they've been rocking the current formula, the 1.6 liter V6 turbo hybrid. It's really kind of a dual hybrid system when you talk about the MGUH and the MGUK. But this formula now for seven years, I'm so glad that they're putting this front and center. And I think the other thing this speaks to is, Probably more likely than not, the next engine formula, which we're going to see in 25 or 26, is probably going to be very similar. Probably going to drop the MGUH, but it's going to be very similar. And in fact, it'll probably be a low displacement six-cylinder V6 with a really powerful turbocharger. But I think the consumer and I think the marketplace is also becoming more and more comfortable with the concept of hybrid cars. I think there was a sense four or five years ago that the road cars that we see and feel today are probably going to, be, going to become predominantly EV or electric or fully electric. But I think what we're starting to see now is more and more of this blend of plug-in hybrids. So cars that are very similar to Formula One in the sense that they have a traditional internal combustion engine, but they also have a fully independent plug-in hybrid system. And I think if we talk about road relevancy, there's still a ton of road relevancy within Formula One. And I know Ross Braun many, many times in the last couple of years has really bristled at the idea of F1 becoming fully electric. And in his perspective, there's probably a, a future where every engine is electric, but maybe that's a century away. And for the next 20, 30, 50 years, internal combustion engines are going to be very much a part of our world. We have millions of cars on the road. We don't are unlikely to see electrified commercial fleets and tankers and airplanes anytime soon. And his point has always been that some sort of compromise, a hybrid compromise using synthetic fuels is probably where we're going. And I think that's going to be it. But I just think it's very cool that Formula One has this phenomenal asset that they should be very proud of. And finally, they're going to start screaming from the mountaintops that, hey, we have this thing, we're proud of it, and you should recognize how great this is for the sport and the environment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yeah, totally. You know, I was thinking about that too. And it's easy to kind of like go after Formula One with the knives. I was like, oh, guys, you dropped the ball. You could have been ahead of the, the, the curve on this one. But Let's be realistic. As great as it would have been to be, you know, promoting these V6 turbo hybrid engines, you know, back in 14 or 15. I mean, it hasn't really been till fairly recently like that this green messaging has really sort of stepped up a, a notch. I, I think that it just it may have um, just fallen on deaf ears to a certain degree. So that's so true. I, 
Yeah. You know, as much as it feels almost a day late and a dollar short, I think that it, it like on the surface, it feels that way. But now that I think like the, the public consciousness or the zeitgeist or whatever you want to call it is kind of really tuned into these things. And, you know, they, they can, they can promote it. Yeah. We've had this, but more, you know, furthermore, we've, we've had these engines in our cars for, for almost a decade now. And this is where we're going, which I think is awesome. Yeah, I think uh, just at the beginning of all this, and I want to dive into the biofuels and e-fuels in a minute, but I mean, at the beginning of all this, when F1 first introduced uh, the engine, at the power unit itself in 2014, I mean, Sebastian Vettel called it uh, a sounding engine <laughs> when they were first introduced. And I mean, that's not, that's not a great marketing, guys. I mean, that's like, that's really bad marketing, right? And I think all of this time under under Bernie Ecclestone before Liberty Media, you know, kind of came, came in, it was, um, it just wasn't, it wasn't handled properly. And then we go back to, you know, the noise and you, we've talked about this before on, on the Scootery F1 podcast before uh, in the past and just how important the, the noise is of a mm. loud screaming engine is for racing is extremely important because, you know, you compare that to what Formula E is doing and, not here to bash Formula E. They do their their own thing, and that's that's great. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think to get real raw emotion from people, I think you I think you need that sound. I mean, look at totally. when they ran Fernando Alonso's um, Renault at Abu Dhabi last year. You guys remember that? Oh yeah, yeah. It's just a light and day, you know, like it's going back. I mean, when I first started to start going to motor uh, racing, their motor races about 20 something odd years ago, dating myself and making myself look uh, like every inch, the old man that I'm rapidly becoming. But I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, it was incredible. The first race I went to just to sitting there and in the grandstands with, with my friends and just, uh, you know, talking. And as the cars went, we'd been there all weekend, of course, and as the cars go by, and just the noise, like, I mean, your head was about to explode. You had to put those little rubber, like, ear earplugs in. And then fast forward to 2014, I remember watching Australia on, on TV for the first race of the year. I was just so underwhelmed. I'm just like, the cars went from sounding awesome to sounding like nothing. And then a couple months later, we were at uh, at the Spanish Grand Prix at Barcelona. And I'm, I just remember, you know, we had like um, our, our earplugs, my wife and I were sitting there all weekend. I don't think they ever came out of my pocket and went into my ears. I know that they've improved it somehow, but that that raw visceral experience where you not only hear the car, see the car, but you feel the car as it goes by. That is that was just awesome, you know. It just you just can't you can't i guess the closest thing you could maybe uh, uh compare it to is going to an air show and watching like an f-16 fly by like super fast and super low it just rumbles right through your your insides it's amazing i think one of the engine's biggest achievements is probably the and, and mark h you mentioned it kind of off the top there is the 50 percent thermal efficiency uh that it's able to do i mean that's incredible that uh, a car with a V6 turbo could actually regain 50% of thermal, turn it into electricity to be used uh, in this race car for deployment on some form or fashion throughout a race. And I think moving forward, as as we get through these seasons and we get closer to, I believe, 2026, I think once we get there at the sustainable fuels, which by that point, they're all supposed to be sustainable fuels, whether it's going to be biofuel or some sort of a synthetic fuel. We're still not sure at, at this point. And 
um, you know, is having a cleaner running internal combustion engine in a world that is trying to become, I guess, more, uh, have more electrification. I mean, is this, I don't know, do you guys think this is a good idea? Because, you know, personally, my thoughts on it are, I mean, it's, 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 um, that the road is going to, the world is going to have so many road going cars for so long. And you're not mm-hmm. just going to like replace them with electric vehicles. You just can't do it. It's impossible. Um, and then you got to look at, I think, bigger things in terms of like flying, freight, trains, like all sorts of different types of things that do run on fuel and a battery just wouldn't be able to, to, do, to do it justice, right? So I don't know. Do you think this is a good idea moving forward or should this thing just switch to, to all electric right away? Tim, you ask, you ask maybe the... The most important question of all, which is, is now the time or is maybe that time 10 years or 15 or 20 years from now? I think this is a, a great bridge, right? We know that F1 is not going to be fully electric in 2026, but we understand based on some of the things that Liberty has said that there'll be a much greater percentage of the power being generated that's going to come from electrification. So I think what we'll probably see in 2026 is a bridge and maybe maybe 2030, maybe 2035, maybe 2040, they'll probably want to get 10 years out of the investment that they're going to have to make into the next power unit. But I suspect that at some point in the future, maybe we become fully electric, but you make such a great point, and this is exactly what Ross Braun keeps saying, which is the world's not going to become electric overnight. This is a long, long journey. And you just touched on some great ideas around the fact that trains aren't going to become electric anytime soon. Neither are transporters, neither are airplanes. And honestly, the current fleet of vehicles on the road are going to be here for 10 or 15 or 20 years. That's a very long period of time. And what's to say that the concept of a plug-in hybrid doesn't gain real traction, no pun intended, but doesn't gain real traction within consumers. Like my wife and I have been looking quite a bit and we keep thinking, well, we could go fully electric and that's really great for the 90% of the time we're in the city. But if we have to go to the city, all of a sudden we've got to worry about where's we're going to get a plug-in station and range or hey, maybe we get a plug-in hybrid. So we have the benefit of being fully electric in the city for those short commutes, Mm -hmm. but we also have the benefit and the convenience of having that that full gas tank and internal combustion engine for those longer trips. So there's nothing to say we don't see a split within consumers that, hey, electric's available and hybrids are available. And then the road relevancy of the Formula One cars is perfectly apt. So yeah, one of the interesting things I think with with all this too is, and you make some good points, um, Hammy, I mean, is like when we look into... Uh, the future of road relevance and then we try and see what racing is doing i think what f1 is trying to do with not only the sustainable fuels but also giving you know the hybrid uh louder voice i think what you do is you you start changing that narrative and for the last what has it been maybe five ten years the narrative's been like electric 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 and we've seen how they make these electric batteries and it's not the cleanest it's not the cleanest yet right but then you have to look at the other side of things is if they do start to do e-fuels or biofuels is it how how is it being done and how clean is it because then you're going to find i think another way of repurposing the internal combustion engine and giving it sort of a second life if they're able to find ways of getting a type of fuel that doesn't uh, emit um um, CO2 and all the other junk that kind of comes with it. So I think if F1 is 
it can find something and, and sort of hit a home run here. I think, I think in a way they, they changed the, uh, the automotive industry and also the narrative as well. I don't know. What do you guys think? Because take it also take into consideration, you know, British Columbia, where you guys are, you have a company out there, carbon engineering, who's kind and of Squamish. Yeah. They're kind of turning the world on its head right now with their direct air capture unit, which captures CO2 out of, out of the air and turns it into, um fuel for your car or they use the co2 i believe it is to plug oil wells that have already been drilled but i mean again there's another sort of innovation that's kind of come online recently and i know <laughs> daily's got a great point to add but a big part of what formula one has promised here is that in 2026 part of this e-fuel synthetic fuels will be derived from carbon that's captured from the atmosphere and then just put back into a fuel. So it's carbon that's been expelled, it's been captured, and it's put back in the, the fuel tank. I would love for this to be the next generation of Formula One trickle-down technology into mm. the civilian world, if you want to call it that. I mean, I can go upstairs now in my car. I've got ABS, I got traction control, I got paddle shift on all that stuff is, you know, originally had its uh, you know, was born on the racetrack, right? But, you know, and I think Mark made the point earlier is that this is going to be a bridge technology. I mean, we will see greater fleets of like EVs on the road, but the question is how long is it going to take until we get there? And also we, you know, we were talking last week, you know, in Mexico city with the, the, you know, the, the high altitude where the, where the racetrack is, how the uh, Honda engine was, uh, you know, more powerful because the, you know, the crossover technology and their, in their, their turbo units, they came out of their aerospace program. I'd love to be able to see some of that go the other way because, you know, as, as much as the road fleet has been clear, cleaned up and doesn't pollute as much as it did say 15, 20, 30 years ago, yeah, good point. I mean, the, the, the great question or points that you guys raised is like, what about trains? What about uh, tankers? What about aircraft? And, you know, uh, you know, what sort of uh, things could maybe migrate from Formula One and racing off of the racetrack into other areas of society. It, it's it's an interesting and exciting time. But on the flip side, too, I think if they could generate similar performance out of an electric power unit right now, I think that they would do it and make that switch. Just, you know, I think that optically it would uh, be a big PR thing for them. But, you know, as we we know and we've seen with Formula E and of course, I'm, I'm not, you know, hating on, on them at all. I mean, what they've done and how they've developed their cars and their technology has been amazing. But I think that if they could do something similar, if you could take out the the the, the, the turbo hybrid unit now and put, get the same performance out of an electric power unit, I think they do it. But the question, you know, the, the point is they're not there and how long is it going to take to get there? So, you know, that's where it remains for the time being. Yeah. And if you look at, uh, we'll move, we'll move on and talk a little bit more about these engines here in the next coming section. But I mean, the amount of energy that they not only get from the MGUH, but also the MGUK is absolutely incredible, man. Like, and if you look at these next round of, of regulations, which are coming in, in in 2026 and, you know, the VW group here has expressed interest into coming into F1 and they're talking about ditching the MGUH and just leaving with the MGUK producing close to 400 horsepower. Like that's insane. That's insane. Like how, how, like to gather that much energy to have it emit 400 horsepower. That's incredible. <laughs> like, honestly, who, who else is doing that? Who's doing that? No one. Right. So if we look at this, to the likes of Mercedes, Ferrari, and Alpine all come to some sort of an agreement, the VW group could enter 
F1. Should these three teams, and we'll include Red Bull Powertrain on top of this, um, be upset if, let's say, the Volkswagen Group is is granted some special exemptions? Yeah, I know Ferrari's kind of maybe cooled on that a little bit. If you read some of the reports that have been floating around this week, that they're not as keen to give concessions to Audi, VW, Porsche, or whatever brand they come into the sport under. I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I mean, just look at the way that Honda struggled. I mean, I mean, it is Formula One. Of course, there's got to be that bar. It shouldn't be easy. Just You just can't expect anybody to show up and expect to, to be there and compete because it's not supposed to be easy. That's That's part of the challenge of Formula One, but I think you have to strike that balance. You know, it can't be too easy to get in, but it can't be too difficult to, as well, because obviously if they're going to bring, uh, attract somebody in like the VW group, they're going to want them to be there for a long time. And uh, we've kind of speculated and talked about it as well, especially with the the, the news that broke, uh, I guess, about two weeks ago now that uh, the, the IP that uh, Red Bull's taking over from Honda is not to be used in any way, shape or form in the development of a new power unit for 2026. So, of course, you know, th- that really begs a question of, OK, well, if they can't use that, is this sort of a stopgap? And then, you know, are they going to partner up with Audi or, or Porsche or something like that? So it really, really is an interesting uh, situation. And, and and again, I think for, for me, the question is, like, where do you like how many concessions do you want to make? You know, and, and that's where I think they're struggling a little bit right now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tim, can I draw an NBA parallel on the show? Is that allowed? <laughs> oh, absolutely, man. I love the NBA. <laughs> so I, I think Daly just, just teed it up, right? Which is you've got these four engine manufacturers today, and, and they're all in some way motivated and incented to keep the current system. And they're willing to make some concessions because they know it's for the greater good. But at the same time for Liberty, it's a really bad look if you're able to seduce somebody like the Volkswagen Group to come in and they have four or five or six horrendous years and they leave the sport. That is so epically damaging for the sport. What we saw with Honda in 2015, mm. 16, 17, that wasn't just bad for Honda and bad for McLaren. That was bad for the sport. And yeah. I'll take that NBA parallel here, but in the late 80s, the NBA did this flurry of expansion. And if you guys remember, the Orlando Magic got really good, really fast. They were getting a bunch of low draft picks. They went to the NBA finals in 95. So by the time the NBA was looking to expand to Toronto and Vancouver, the NBA is like, whoa, we have to do everything in our power to make sure that these teams can't get too good too soon. So they were restricted on where they could draft. They couldn't pick in the first, uh, they couldn't draft first overall in the first three years. They had to reduce salary cap. There's all kinds of things that were done to make sure they couldn't be too successful too soon. But ultimately the restrictions were so 
so severe that you had one of the teams that basically failed in Vancouver and ended up moving. And Toronto was very much in the same boat where it looked like a failed franchise after six or seven years. It wasn't really until Vince came that they were able to turn it around. But I think for the sake of Liberty and the look of the sport, as much as Mercedes and Ferrari and Renault slash Alpine and Red Bull may not want somebody to come in and be hyper competitive from day one, the alternative is that they're not competitive and that's not good for anybody. But a question for you, because this is something that daily has been speculating about on the air is that if they come in, do they come in with the intent of developing their own power unit or do they come in and gobble up what Red Bull's working on in the Red Bull power units division? So do we end up with a fifth engine supplier or do we stay with four, but they just take over? Because to Daly's point, Honda is not allowing Red Bull to retain any IP for that 2026 power unit. They've got to start from scratch. Does that make sense? Is that something that maybe you've heard whispers about? Yeah, it's a it's a great question because I don't think at this point anybody knows what's going to happen. Not even Red Bull. I don't. They don't even know what they're going to do. All they kind of know is they're flying by the seat of the pants here, and they gobbled up the Honda IP for you know the remaining Grand Prix that are left over the next few years. And here we are. So I think like at the end of the day, I, I think what's going to end up happening is you know Volkswagen. I think could bring in. Porsche and Audi or Porsche and Lamborghini just somewhere in from that umbrella and bring them sort of both both in and rebadge them as something else put one at Red Bull and put the other one over at Williams or something something yes, along yes. those mm -hmm. lines I I can kind of see happening because it could, could kind of be like a marketing sort of ploy here where they can make um a V6 uh, hybrid engine. They've already done it before, like with, with Porsche and their programs that they run over there. So this isn't like something that they're not used to. So they could easily just create one engine, badge it two different things, send it to two different teams and give them both like whatever it is, like a hundred million a year or something like that, which is really at the end of the day, F1 is such a huge marketing, um, uh, it's huge marketing pool that, you know, 100 million bucks probably buys, get, gives them a lot in return. I mean, look at Mercedes, right? Like how much yep. money they actually made by their spend um, every single year. But it's, uh, it is definitely going to be fascinating. I'm interested to see how this thing goes. I think one of the most important things is that if they do decide to come in, I think they're going to have to take a back seat to like the likes of Ferrari, Mercedes. Uh, Alpine, the team, the, the the engine manufacturers who have been with and behind Formula One through thick and thin, I think they're, these team, these these manufacturers are going to have to take a bit of a back seat, and it's probably going to be a tough few years for them to try and claw and scratch their way up into podium positions. But I think at the end of the day, you have to hold them a bit accountable. Where it's like, remember the days of Toyota and BMW, like. Mm. They were in and Absolutely. out. You know what yep. I mean? So it's kind of like you've got to hold them to some sort of long-term agreements to to keep Good them call. around because I don't think Formula One or any racing series for that matter moving forward can really have um, engine manufacturers coming in, coming out of racing series is when they, whenever they feel like it. Right guys. Yeah. I mean, like it's just, um, it's, it's, it's not right at the end of the day. It's not a good look. Definitely yeah. not. You know what is a good look? Jones soda merchandise. My favorite is the black pullover hoodie. And with the winter coming, I like to stay warm. And this hoodie does that for me. It's warm, soft, and everything you need in a good hoodie. Visit jonesoda.com to purchase your merchandise now.
we found out that Alfa Romeo is closing in on a um, driver signing for 2022. Uh, the announced date should be next week sometime. Uh, Mark Daly, I'll start with you. Who do we think is going to be taking that second seat at uh, Alfa Romeo? Is Antonio Giovinazzi coming back or no? Well, I, th- I think 100% it's going to be Nikita Mazepin because uh, he said last week he has his eyes on something bigger and better. So, you know, just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a little bit of wishful thinking. Ah, but uh, joking aside, I think the uh, the, the two likely um, names that are going to be the top of that list are F2 drivers Guan Yu Zhu and Oscar Piastri. So I think that they seem to be the, the most logical choice to, to, to slot in there. But this, I think, has been a bit of an underreported maybe soap opera. That, that hasn't really gotten a lot of uh, attention. Of course, Alpha being a bit of a smaller team and there's been plenty of other things that everybody's been watching this year. This one's probably fl- flown under the, 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 the radar a little bit, especially in the past couple of weeks with the discussions between Alpha and Andretti Motorsport and a possible takeover there. But uh, this is an interesting one. I, I feel a little bit bad for Giovinazzi to, to an extent, but he's had a couple of years in the car. And I, I guess at some point, uh, Alpha is maybe also maybe taking a page out of the Williams book and not necessarily just taking a Ferrari Academy driver and just to making that second seat available to them and uh, just trying to strike out their own way very much like Williams did when they uh, uh, put uh, Alex Albon in the car for next year. Yeah, I think Mr. Daly stole my thunder there. And I think for very much the same, (laughs) I think very much for the same reasons that Williams is trying to assert some some sense of independence away from Mercedes. And we saw that with that shock, maybe not shocking, but maybe surprising Alex Albon signing. I think at least me, I assumed it was going to be Nick DeVry because of the connection to the connection to Mercedes. I think that we're probably going to see young Alpine drivers who sign up and sit in that car next year. And I think one is because it's going to be based on merit Two, I think that Alfa Romeo Sauber wants to continue to assert some sense of independence away from Ferrari, despite the fact that they're their power engine supplier, but also, and I think maybe most critically, it's been widely reported that Zhu is going to bring 25 to $30 million of funding per year to that team. And for the Sauber group, I think that's a big chunk of money that they would desperately need. And at the same time, and on the same note, I I like Giovinazzi. I think it's sad he's going to leave. He's been a test driver and has been around the Ferrari team for a very long time. And clearly Ferrari was incented and motivated to have an Italian driver in the premier open wheel racing class. But I think his time is is gone. And I think we're going to see Zhu. And I think it's going to be exciting for the sport, especially given the fact that we saw reports last week that the Chinese Grand Prix has signed a new long-term deal. We don't know if they're going to be around next year, a hundred percent, but they will return at least by 2024, 2023. But I think we'll see our first Chinese-born driver in the Formula One series. And I think it's probably a little bit overdue. But I also think that this may have been a major point of contention in the negotiations with Andretti Autosport. And I think it's the principal reason that this deal wasn't announced earlier in the sense that, hey, we knew what the deal was. It was going to be $250 million plus guaranteed funding that would be made available to the team, kind of on credit over the next three or four years. But we learned, and Michael Andretti was very clear in saying that it just came down to who was going to maintain control of the team. And I, I know... 
Tim, you were very close to that story and you reported on it quite closely, but I can't help but wonder if part of the deal broke apart because the Andretti group was very incented to get an American driver in there and Colton Herta. And ultimately Sauber said, no, like logistically, financially, it just makes more sense to go with you. And if I'm Andretti and that group, do I really want to invest in a team that I don't have total control over that's motivated to get a Chinese driver rather than a young American driver in that seat? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's all about control. Like I, when I talked to Michael about this um, a few weeks ago, it all hinged on how much control Michael could have of of the team. And at the end of the day, it just sounded like they weren't going to give him much of any control, you know, whatsoever. But I mean, when you're making a spend, like I can't remember totally. what it was. It was totally. it was like well north of like three hundred and fifty million plus fifty million on year for the next five years or something ridiculous like that. It was, mm-hmm. it was an astronomical number. But at the end of the day, I think like for, for Michael, if he's going to make that type of a spend, he's going to want to have more control. I don't necessarily think it's all, all comes down to um, the, the driver because I think at the end of the day, it would have been difficult for Colton to just get into a formula one car right away and be quick. Like he would have to, do quite a bit of testing guys. I mean, it just would not have been easy right. for him. He doesn't right. have the super license points. I believe he's like eight or nine points uh, shy of actually getting his super license points. So there's a lot that goes into that as well. So I think like at the end of the day, yes, control issues, maybe not so much um, Colton, but I think taking a driver like Juan Yujo is a smart move. He's very talented um, and yes, he will be a paid Agreed. driver, but like, I think at the end of the day, he's, he's really good. And I think you can't pass up if you're a team like Alfa Romeo, you can't pass up talent and sponsorship, all of them coming at you, uh, in the same, um, package, because I think for, for them, you know, Raikkonen is on his last legs here. I mean, he hasn't really been that great in the last few years. He's, he's been with them. Um, and I think he needed to get fresh talent in there a lot sooner than what they, what they've done now. But I mean, at the end of the day, looking at this team moving forward with, with a driver like Valtteri Bottas and a rookie, I mean, I think like the only, the only way to go from here on is, is up for them, including a fresh injection of sponsorship money is going to be, going to be massive for them. I don't know if you guys want to touch on this a little bit more, but. Sponsorship uh, money aside, I mean, just the fact that uh, they're most likely going to put a, a young driver in there is, addresses one of the issues that I have with Formula One is there is no sort of clear cut pipeline for these young drivers to get experience in these cars. And, you know, the news that that they're saying that every driver is going to have to sit out at least one FP1 session in 22. So these younger drivers get the experience and they can get those points on their super license. I think that's that that's like long, long, long overdue. I mean, otherwise, how are these the, the, the next generation of drivers going to get that experience? Otherwise, it's just a, a closed club. And I mean, that's why I thought it was so amazing a couple of years ago that uh, you know, Red Bull that have had this, you know, vaunted driver academy for years and years and years ended up having to you know re- resuscitate the the F1 career of Danny Kvyat and bring him back and do this driver shuffle around because all these you know very young talented drivers didn't have enough points for their super license to get into formula 1 it was just like mind blowing mm-hmm. from like the team that's really been at the forefront of driver academies yeah and looking at you know the, the that news coming out for 2022 each F1 um, team needs to run 
a uh, rookie driver in two slots. So in both cars, uh, this next season coming up, I think it's a smart move. I mean, at the end of the day, I think you need to find out uh, what type of talent you've got within your team's young driver program. I think this will also force some teams like Aston Martin to actually have their own young driver development program, which at the moment they they don't. So I, I don't know. I'm all in on this idea, guys. I don't know about you. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think one of the big dynamics that's changed with Formula One, and it's really been driven by the cost cap and the reduced kind of reduction in expenses is, Tim, you know, daily, you followed Formula One forever. Like we used to have in-season testing. We used to have weeks and weeks <laughs> of winter testing. <laughs> the teams could cart their their cars off to random tracks in the countryside for unofficial testing. They don't have any of that. The amount of testing that these teams have now is so limited that you can't afford to have anybody but your core drivers in those cars, even on a shakedown weekend or a photo day. So I think forcing the teams to open up one free practice, one slot from each of your drivers, each of your contracted drivers over the course of a, a calendar is great because I would love to have seen Zhu this year in that car more often. I would love to have seen him. I would love to have seen Nick DeVries in a Formula One car this year. And the other thing that's really great about this is not only does it open up opportunities for these young drivers, help them start collecting some super license points, but it also brings more interest to free practice one. I really don't want to see Kimi Raikkonen in his 17th free practice one session of the year. <laughs> I would love to have seen uh, you in a free practice one session in Brazil or Mexico City. Do you know what I mean? So even just in terms of stimulating interest, it's it's really good. There has to be a way to develop and nurture the young talent to get them into the sport. Completely Otherwise, agree. You, you know, I mean, I, not to throw any shade at, uh, at Kimi Raikkonen, but just like you're saying, yeah. Tim, it's like, what, what's he really done for the for, for Alpha in the last couple of years? Yeah. I mean, arguably, I think the first year he was there, there, there was probably some value, but, you know, especially this year, I mean, he's he's been anonymous, but when you go into next year, especially with 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 Valtteri and uh, you know a, a hot young driver like either Zhu or Piastri, I mean, I, I think that's a great combination, you know. And uh, especially if you get some more money coming into the team, I think that's the way to go. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So this weekend, MotoGP will bid adieu to a legend, the doctor himself, Valentino Rossi. Uh, the 42-year-old has been racing MotoGP for, I believe, 21 years, I think it is. Um... Guys, are you sad that that he's going to be gone, Hammy? I'll start with you because I know you're you're close to MotoGP. Yeah, heartbroken, absolutely. It's the right time, I, I think, especially based on the results we saw this year and last year. It's the right time, but this is a guy, and we talk about. I'm a big fan of talking about this concept of a transcendent <laughs> talent, somebody that comes into the sport and breaks it open and takes it to a demographic that maybe wouldn't have been interested in the sport before. And I think Lewis has absolutely done this with Formula One. I think we saw it in the NBA with Michael Jordan. I think we've seen it in other sporting leagues with some of their 
heritage, classic, superstar, Hall of Fame type players. But Valentino Rossi took the MotoGP championship, was which was very, very narrow in, in focus, had a very small viewership, and he broke it wide open. He made MotoGP must-watch sports in the late 2000s. This is a guy that jumped into MotoGP in 2002. So MotoGP, to put it into context, is kind of like the Formula One of the motorcycle racing world. Very similar structure, very similar calendar, practice sessions, qualifying, Grand Prix. He wins the title in 2002 with Honda in his first year, wins again in 2003 with Honda, has a shock switch to Yamaha for 2004, runs off another two championships, wins the title again in 08, 09, and then finishes second in 14, 15, and 16. Just happens to come up against Mark Marquez. He had some legendary rivalries against Casey Stoner, against Mark Marquez, against Jorge Lorenzo. And I think most notably for your listeners who might be like, why is this guy going on about MotoGP on a Formula One? podcast between 2004 and 2010, he tested with Ferrari Mm -hmm. seven times. And in some of those sessions, he was within one second of Michael Schumacher in the same car on the same tires on the same track. And ultimately he would have made the switch to formula one. And he spoke about this more recently in some uh, more recent interviews, but it really came down to the fact that his expectation was that he would make the switch to formula one. If he was guaranteed a full-time ride with, uh, with Ferrari and Ferrari was like, no, we want to get you into formula one in a slower car, in a partner team car in a customer car first, but he was phenomenal. He had a huge personality. He was bigger than life. His helmets, his race suits, everything about him, his, his energy, just fantastic. So it's going to be a big blow for formula one, but this year, you know, he's 20th in the championship. He's not on a front running premier team anymore. Last year he was, he finished 15th. It's the right time for a racer in his forties. The world is his oyster in terms of what he can do. He's talked largely about going to WRC and racing competitively in the world rally championship. Maybe that's an opportunity, but it's a blow big personality. He delivered so much to the world of motorsports. He finishes with seven championships at the premier level uh, between MotoGP2 and MotoGP1. He has 65 poles, 96 fastest laps, 235 podiums, 115 wins, and 431 races for a 25% win record. So big blow. And I'm a big fan. It'll be tough to see him go. How do I even come close to uh, that that little? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm there sorry, by Mr. I, Hamilton. <laughs> I, I had my notes ready to go for this segment, and that was not off the top of my head. I promise. <laughs> but but you know, Mark, I mean, you make a. I mean, apart from all those impressive stats and all the you know the the milestones that 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 Valentino achieved in his career, the fact that he tested in Formula One was so close to to, to Michael Schumacher's times. Uh, you know, when, when he was testing in identical cars and and all that, the one word that really popped out is transcendent. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he was one of those guys that just was bigger than the sport itself. So I'm going to throw it to Tim now, being a driver yourself, when you see a guy like, like Valentino, that, that when he sort of like, you know, he like, like, I mean, he appeals to so many different people across so many different segments of society and, and sports. What, what is it about drivers like that or, or riders in this case? Yeah, I think for for me, I'm a MotoGP fan because of Valentino Rossi, but not only Same. that, because of his Same, battle, hundred percent. Yeah, because of his rivalry though with uh, Mark Marquez, that's what really got me into Absolutely. into MotoGP. Because for those people who are listening who don't know, I mean, his battle against Mark Marquez was honestly some of the craziest rivalry stuff I have ever seen it was insane some of the some of those championships so 
yeah, that that was a big one for me for for um, for Valentino Rossi. And not not only that, I think like his demeanor as well. And usually, whenever he gave a press conference, it was broken English, but it was like it was really well said. And what he had to say absolutely made, it, made absolutely. a ton of sense. And it was like short form, but it had an impact. You know what I mean? Like he was he was really something. And uh, I'm definitely going to be sad to see him go. Lewis Hamilton also asked about it uh, today. He's going to be sad to see Valentino go as well because those two actually did some track days together uh, mm-hmm. on some on some bikes in the, in the past, and so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see Valentino Rossi kicking around a, a Formula One paddock, taking in some races uh, in the future. A driver who's going to be taking in a lot of races in the future is going to be George Russell. So <laughs> he revealed that he will start with Mercedes at the season's end by taking part for the team in the post-season tire test. I mean, sometimes it's difficult for teams to just let these drivers kind of walk away and let them go do these tire tests and stuff like that. But, I mean, Williams was pretty good about just letting him go and and do his thing. Right. Um, Yeah, I don't know, guys. If you're a team owner at Williams, do you let George Russell just walk away and go do tire tests at the end of the season with uh, the team he's moving on to? You know, I, I love George. I love what he's done at Williams, but I mean, and, and I'm not going to accuse him of uh, you know being anything less than professional that where where he is right now. But you have to think at least mentally, part of him is already in that Mercedes car. So I think the first opportunity that uh, that he was going to get, he was going to jump at it, even if it is like a postseason tire shakedown or whatever it is. Uh, I mean, George, you know, I mean, he's been waiting for this opportunity. And he's almost been the the last of that class of drivers. I mean, look, look at like what Lando's been doing, and like that that sort of that same age group. So I mean, he got the drive that he wanted, and he got the drive that uh, I mean, of course, he's going to argue that he deserved. So he's going to be you know first opportunity. And and if you're Williams. I mean, if you're Yas Capito, like, what do you really have to gain at this point? You already made your statement to Mercedes that uh, you're you're trying to be a little bit more independent with the Alex Albon thing. So, you know, trying to keep George from from going and and starting his duties with the Mercedes and a really maybe not the the most important test out of the entire year really serves very little. And if anything, it, it may could potentially put a strain on that relationship between uh, Mercedes and Williams. I, I don't see any benefit on Williams trying to put the brakes on that. I completely agree. I think as a professional courtesy, given the fact that for all intents and purposes, Russell's really been on loan to the Williams team from Mercedes for the last three championships. I think he's going to be there. And I, I think Williams is going to be happy to do it, but I think they're also happy to do it because they want to get Alex Albon into their garage today, tomorrow, as soon as possible. And I think what's going to be interesting to see is just how sticky Red Bull is going to go be with letting him go because he's provided great value to that team in the simulator mm-hmm. this year as a test driver or being around the factory. I, I've record or I've read a couple of times about just how much of a grind his schedule has been this year. So I think the question isn't about whether Russell's going to be with Mercedes. It's going to be more how quickly does how quickly does Williams get Albon? And I think if you guys remember, 
there's often been a lot of friction between teams when there have been driver moves between teams in the championship. And we always look back to Fernando Alonso in 2006 when he went to McLaren. Well, he was under contract with Renault until December 31st, but McLaren so desperate to get him in their car and on a track, ultimately came to a compromise in which they allowed him to test in late 2006, but they had to strip all of the logos and branding off of his race suit and the car to be able to do it. I think there'll be more of a professional courtesy here. Here, but I am very curious to see just how quickly Red Bull is going to let Alex Albon go to Williams. Yeah, I talked to Nicholas Satifi about this earlier on uh, Thursday, and I asked him if he's run into Alex yet at, at the shop, and he said, you know, no, not he hasn't seen him since uh, the last time, which was when they were both announced as Williams drivers for 2022. So uh, I don't think he's there quite yeah, at the moment, Alex has been doing a lot of coaching with um, Yuki Tsunoda uh, on the side. And so I'm assuming that's where he's spending most of his time. But at the same time, I don't know how much Red Bull is allowing him to really use the simulator because technically he was their simulator driver over the Grand Prix weekends. And they had him testing a lot of stuff throughout the night when uh, the teams were on the ground at current Grand Prix. So that's going to be something interesting to see Good whenever point. Red Bull, whenever Red Bull, yeah, whenever Red Bull lets him go, that, that'll be interesting. Mercedes also hasn't announced who will be driving its second car for that tire test at the end of the season. Could be Nick DeVries, guys. Um, so keep an eye out for that. That would one. make and, sense. Yeah, and Mercedes is also speaking with um, Alfa Romeo to release Valtteri Bottas a little bit early ahead of the Abu Dhabi test. Um, Bottas again. Kind of sounds like the doors are starting to close on him at Mercedes as well in terms of information sharing because they don't want him taking some of the info and going off to, to Alfa Romeo with it. F1 teams are expecting a very uh, sleepless few nights here as they scramble to get their freight and uh, put the cars together. So on Tuesday uh, morning, fog in Mexico City delayed some of F1's air freights. Um, two planes, I believe it was, landed in Brazil on Thursday morning. Uh, most of the teams had to put off building the cars. Red Bull and Mercedes in particular were very much affected by this. Mercedes still uh, don't even have their engines at the time of taping this podcast. Um, the build process, I believe, for the cars is 10, 9, 10 hours, maybe pushing 12 sometimes. So if F1 has uh, gotten rid of the uh, the curfew um, and guys, I think this could be uh, tight to have these cars ready for um, Friday's uh, free practice one. What do you think? Well, it just sort of seemed that that this something like this was almost inevitable. I mean, we've seen how many double and triple headers over the past uh, two years, and you know, with going to what twenty three races again yeah, next year is it twenty four? I can't remember. I've lost track. That <laughs> something like this almost seems it, it was going to happen sooner or later, especially with this North South America, then off to the Middle East triple header. I mean. That was going to be pushing logistics, even if everything ran on schedule. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously there's rules in place when it comes to the, the, this sort of thing, but when it's beyond anybody's control, I mean, this just isn't the guy standing around in the garage, like, you know, drinking coffee and watching TikToks. I mean, there's, 
<laughs> you know, there, there, there's been a, a real, you know, snag in the whole process of getting these cars. I mean, going from Mexico City to Sao Paulo, I mean, that that's not exactly a short trip. So those the, the delays and just like you say, the build time at best is nine or 10 hours. And, you know, if those, um, you know, those deliveries, those, uh, you know, flights are delayed. Yeah, that's just going to make a tight deadline, even basically impossible to meet. There's probably never a good time for something like this to happen, but you're right. The the incidence rate or the rate that we might see things like this happen is only going to increase as we go to a 23 and a 24 and a 25 race calendar. And there's going to be more back to back to back race weekends and globe trotting. So it's, it's kind of a surprise in a sense that we haven't seen more of this, especially over the course of last year when global travel has been so heavily disrupted by the pandemic. And I think you know, Tim, you make a great point that it takes eight to 10 hours to pull these cars and the power units out of the casings and out of the shipping containers and put them together. And Friday morning is when you need to have that car on the track because tomorrow we have free practice one. And typically these teams build the cars throughout the day on the Thursday. So the cars are off the jacks. They're on their wheels by late day Thursday. They're ready to go. Right now, to your point, these power units are missing and we have free practice one tomorrow. And let's not forget, it's a sprint qualifying weekend. We have qualifying tomorrow. Like there, there's no, there's no margin Crazy. for error here. Mm -hmm. And again, you touched on the fact that, hey, Red Bull and Mercedes are missing components. Well, those are the two teams also vying for the championship. Yeah, I'll take you through a quick story. When I was racing, I, I had a big accident and the team stayed all night to put the car back together and they didn't get in to sleep until probably 6 a.m and i believe at the time if i remember correctly they only got like two hours worth of sleep oh, next, man. next day was um race day and they forgot to plug in the, the the radio for me so i could talk back and forth with them because the mechanic who was getting me ready was sleep deprived so i mean at the end of the day you're you're really running these crews into the ground as well. I mean, this can't be easy. They're on a uh, a triple header here. None of them have gone home yet. Um, they've all slept in different beds from here, from the U.S. wherever it's been, U.S., Mexico, and now into Brazil. So, I mean, it's it that's tough. That's uh, that's really high hard on the crew. And yeah, I um, I I don't uh, I don't envy their job at, at the moment. That's for sure. Uh, looking at this track in Brazil, high elevation, you know, Max can smell his world drivers championship if he wins here. But I don't know, guys, what do you see playing out this weekend? That, that, that's a great question. Uh, I, I was sort of thinking this one uh, through this afternoon. Three probably four races depending what happens here to go i mean uh, i know fernando is kind of got has his doubts about uh, you know and uh, dislikes about the way that this uh, run out to the the, the season is going to go but let's just go from the premise that we're we're going to get the four races in saudi's going to happen and i was i was kind of going back okay max has got that 19 point lead over lewis and i started thinking back to 2016 with nico and lewis and i was just thinking well one thing i know for sure and and this is going to be a little bit obvious. Max is not Nico Rosberg. And I, I think that um, regardless what happens, I think that Max is going to fight all the way to the end. I, I don't think that he'll necessarily kind of be strategic and um, and just kind of get the results that he needs. I don't think that, uh, I, I think that if he wins this weekend and say he gets that 25 point lead in his pocket, he basically has that one race win in his pocket with four races to go. 
and really puts him in, you know, puts one of those two guys in the, the first real, um, you know, really solid position to say, yeah, I, I've got one hand on the championship now. I mean, neither of these guys have had that, that really huge lead all season long, but mm. I could see that maybe if he gets that, say that 25 plus points uh, buffer over Lewis after this weekend or, or at, at some point, I think that he might, I think he'll still race hard, but I think that he won't take as many chances if that kind of makes sense. This was this was always going to be a complex weekend with a lot of variables simply because we're talking about a sprint qualifying weekend. There's a lot that can go wrong here. We squish qualifying into a Friday that's out of pace, out of tempo for the drivers. That's not within their typical kind of muscle memory. Then Saturday, we have the sprint qualifying session. So it's it's kind of curious. And all of a sudden, the sprint qualifying session matters more than ever because of the points that are on the line. And then, of course, on Sunday, we've got the Grand Prix. And the weather at this point looks a little bit shaky. And then you compound all of those variables and those pressures with the fact that so much of the freight hasn't even arrived from Mexico City yet. It's going to be an interesting race weekend. If not for those things, If this was a traditional Grand Prix weekend and it was going to be dry, I'd say, look, Max is going to go out and he's going to dominate because we're still talking about a high elevation track. But that said, it wasn't that long ago that really the Red Bull pace was nowhere to be seen. If we look at Sochi, if we look at Monza, if we look at Spa, which doesn't really count, and if we look at Turkey, Mercedes had pace for days in those race weekends. And I think if Lewis can get through this race weekend and maybe it's a one, two and max wins. And again, it doesn't matter if he's 15 seconds ahead because it's only going to be those seven points, maybe eight, if you factor in fastest lap, but ultimately if Lewis can stay second on the podium, that's good because it's damage mitigation because all of a sudden, then we go to three tracks at sea level and two of them have super long straights. Now, all of a sudden we're talking about tracks that are better suited for Mercedes. And when we've been at tracks similar to those this year that are at sea level, Mercedes has had really sudden pace. So I think this weekend's all about damage mitigation. But again, if Hamilton DNFs, it's over. If Bottas Mm -hmm. DNFs, the constructors Mm -hmm. is going to be over. Now, I still think Max has room to have a bad race weekend. Maybe he finishes out of the points. Maybe he finishes in the top 10. Maybe he DNFs. I think he still has a shot, but there's massively more pressure on Hamilton. Now, that said, Hamilton knows how to race in pressure. We remember 2007, his rookie campaign, 08, 14, 16. This is nothing new to him. So for all those people saying that, hey, Lewis has never faced pressure like this. Yes, he has many, many times, but he certainly doesn't have as much rope at this point as as Max Verstappen does. Max Verstappen, that 19-point lead, that's critically important, uh, but we'll see how this race weekend plays out. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one, I think, think too, and you make a good point about um, Verstappen. You know, he is due for something to have happened to him, but I think at the end of the day, ever since we got through the Italian Grand Prix. I mean, this has kind of been a different Max Verstappen. Like after he parked his car on top of Lewis's head there, it's kind of, mm-hmm. it's kind of changed. You know, he's, he's different. He actually has been, in my opinion, uh, I think a bit more focused. His, the mistakes have uh, dramatically dropped. Um, perfect example, I think would be Russia when he had to take the grid penalty and then on top of that, the engine penalty, and then it begins to rain. The team tells him what to do. He obeys the order when he really doesn't because at that moment, no one wanted to come in 
and get rain tires. And he was one of the only drivers who actually listened to the team, came in, got those rain tires, and then, you know, got up into that second place because of doing that. So I think we've seen a different Max Verstappen since the Italian Grand Prix. And I think he's going to be very difficult to beat this weekend. But um, I think if, if Lewis were, and, it, and the conversation did come up again in the um, press conference earlier today with him, um, when he was asked about taking an engine penalty this weekend, which would put him on engine number five. And I still seem to, th- I, I feel that's a, I think it's a good way to go because you're going to be going to these next last three races of the season. It is in Mercedes territory. You're going to tracks that are big power tracks. I mean, that Saudi Arabia track is going to be flat out guys like that. That's going to be one of the fastest street circuits that they've got on the calendar or they've ever seen. It looks blindingly fast. So, and that's what this power unit is created to do. So I think if you can take that fresh engine, I think now's the time to do it. I think that sets Mercedes up well for the last three races of the season, because at the end of the day, you're not looking for seconds. You're looking for tenths, and you're looking for, uh, hundreds and you're looking for thousands at this moment, right? For this championship battle. So I think if they do end up taking a penalty, I think they should do it now and suffer whatever it will be five places for an internal combustion engine. And I think Lewis can make that up in this race if, if that were to happen, but it's totally. definitely, it's definitely going to be interesting. I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, I'm really looking forward to, to the sprint race only because this looks like a track, you know, we've been to before and we know you can pass on. So yeah, definitely looking that definitely looking forward to this weekend. Um, Mark Daly, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, as we get out of here, you know, tell everybody what you got going on. So, uh, we've got, uh, of course the, the, uh, the, our weekly podcast, which drops every Thursday night or Friday morning. So uh, that's our, our usual uh, deal, and then we are we're on uh, every Sunday evening Pacific time to wrap up the the the, the race, and uh, we'll be doing that uh, this weekend. And just one more quick thing before we go: Do you think that uh, that Max has a, a real quick word with uh, with Esteban Alcon? Just like I'm watching <laughs> you, I'm watching you. Okay. Remember what happened last time? <laughs> okay. Well, think about this. Here, think about this. Formula Three; those two competed against each other. Esteban Ocon won the championship. Max Verstappen finished third in that championship. Verstappen's never won a championship. And if he goes on to win a world championship, he will have beaten Esteban Ocon to that championship. There you go. (laughs) Maybe maybe it'll take uh, take some time, but maybe he'll finally get his reward. But uh, (laughs) yeah, uh, just to wrap that uh, that thought up, you can find me on uh, Twitter at MarkDailyF1, and that's daily with an L-E-Y at the end, and the pod is at ScuderiaF1 pod. And Mark Hamilton, what what are you saying these days? I think he's uh, pretty much summed it up. I, I think the only other thing I would add, and you know, I want to take this opportunity as well to thank you. We do a regular spaces chat on Twitter every Thursday night. It's kind of a warm up for the podcast. So while Daly's stewing away in the background, doing all the things that are required to get a podcast ready, getting the steam machine going, shoveling coal, whatever it takes. I'm on spaces <laughs> chilling with our listeners, but you had a surprise cameo a couple of weeks ago. And I cannot tell you how well received that was from the group. And there was a couple of listeners on there that were a little bit more pointed in their questions. Tim, 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 Tim. <laughs> it was awesome. And everybody loved having you there. So um, that was fantastic. But we do a spaces chat every Thursday. It's really fun. It's a great way just to talk about 
about F1 in a safe environment. We try to make it as inclusive as possible because we recognize as well, and we want to nurture the fact that so many of our listeners are newer to the sport. They came in through that generation DTS, and we just want to make them feel part of the culture. And I have to say, and this is something that Daly and I were a little bit scared of, you know, a year and a half ago, we were looking at all these listeners like, hey, they're great. They're new. We sound like pros. The problem now is when we engage with them on space, it's like, oh, oh my God, they're going to see that I'm a fraud. So <laughs> we have to stay extra, extra sharp. And the amount of prep that even I do for a show has increased. But again, thank you for joining us. And, and thank you as always for all the uh, the support and show or support you've shown for our show, but also for the sheer amount of support that you've shown for Formula One in, in Canada and, and across North America. You're definitely an asset to the sport. Yeah, I appreciate that. Whenever you, whenever you want me to drop by to do a spaces, I'd be more than happy to drop in again because it was a lot of fun. Uh, guys, thanks again. That's Mark Hamilton and Mark Daly from at Scuderia F1 Pod on Twitter. You can listen to the Scuderia F1 Podcast on Apple and Spotify. Guys, thanks again. Big thanks to the guys from Scuderia F1 Pod for coming on the show today. If you want more TSN Racing Pod, you can get it at tsn.ca slash tsn-racing-pod or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Tim Haraney. You can get me at Tim Haraney on all forms of social media. Also, big thanks to Joan Soda for coming on to the show today. Brazil Grand Prix coming up this weekend. We'll have another breakdown of the Grand Prix following the race on the podcast that should come out on Monday afternoon. Until then, thanks everyone for listening and we'll talk to y'all later.